Hi there. They don't want you to hear the great news that Trump has been federally indicted. Yeah, fuck him. Literally in jail. <laughs> my chicken thought that was funny. Gonna have my party right now. We just listened a couple times to uh, Short But Sweet. Um, and Diamond and Seal, there's a, oh, they're live. Oh, great. Watching, yes. Pesik. Нашли пёсика на островке из ковра. Сейчас Андрюха спасёт её. Social security attorney, as he says in his Twitter profile, he talks on TV. So Law and order prevails. I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Lights On. Donald J. Trump has had a lot of titles over his years that he did not earn. But now he finally has one he deserves. Federal criminal defendant. Yeah. This is... One hundred sixty plus GOP traitors disqualified from public office under Fourteenth Amendment. Shit. Such a momentous and historic week for democracy. So many victories. We, of course, have this Trump indictment, 38 counts in the Southern District in Florida. There was also a massive development in my case this week that I have been fighting for years, the Trump NDA case. I'm going to share that with you. And I have just the most wonderful guest. I'm What's so uh, grateful to have him with me on a day like today, Bradley Moss, national security attorney. As he says in his Twitter profile, he talks on TV sometimes. I'm so glad that he's here with us today to talk to us on Lights On. Welcome, Brad. Thank you so much, Jessica. I'll be happy to help. Well, let's just start off. We have today this unsealed indictment, 31 counts of willful retention of national security information, one conspiracy to obstruct justice, so one count of withholding a document or record, one of corruptly concealing a document or record, one of concealing a document in a federal investigation, one scheme to conceal, and two false statements and representations. Brad, just right off the bat, I mean, we, we've seen, we've all seen this indictment at this point. We know that Donald Trump was uh, moving boxes around from bathrooms to bedrooms to um, dining halls. Give us your perspective on just the gravity of this indictment of Donald Trump in the context of the work that you do in the national security field. Sure. So this is a serious and rather dangerous moment for Donald Trump. This indictment, much more than what we saw come out of Manhattan with the hush money case, this indictment truly threatens to put him in prison for a significant yeah. period of time if this gets to trial and if he is convicted. The description outlined in the indictment, and of course what's in the indictment is not the full range of factual information. Uh, Jack Smith's team will have to outline all of that at trial. It'll be a very lengthy factual presentation, no doubt, the witness testimony and documents and video. But the facts that we do know from this indictment make very clear that Donald Trump was aware that boxes had been moved to Mar-a-Lago that still contained 
uh, national defense information, specifically classified information, stolen classification markings on it. He knew that he wasn't allowed to continue to hold on to classified information. He wasn't supposed to be showing it to anybody. He wasn't supposed to be keeping it anywhere on his Mar-a-Lago. And that when he was requested to return it by first the National Archives, and then ultimately the Justice Department, he balked, he stalled, he jerked them around, he tried to evade subpoenas. Live. According to the indictment, he had Walt Nauda, his body man, moving boxes in and out of the storage room to conceal <laughs> documents from Evan Corcoran, who was the lawyer who was about to go in there to sort through the, the documents in the boxes in order to comply with an FBI subpoena <laughs> last June. He did everything he could to put himself in this situation. He is facing this indictment and these 38 uh, charges, sorry, counts, under seven different charges because of his own actions. Because if he had handled this properly, if he had simply returned those documents saying, sorry, my bad, we didn't mean to take that stuff with us, the Justice Department would never have pursued this as an indictment. It would never have gotten this far. There never would have been a special counsel. He is here because of his own actions. And thank God he finally is. I mean, this is somebody who has skated accountability for literally his entire life. You know, Brad, I think back to Trump Soho. I often think of that as the first missed opportunity to indict Trump on fraud charges and just so many opportunities. I, of course, um, you know, have taken full stock of my vast ignorance of who this man was before I went to work for him in 2016. Um, But there were just so many uh, criminal um, such a criminal path on the way to his to the White House, um, and that he then, of course, just doubled down on throughout his presidency, all the way until he walked out that door with these documents. Um, but it, it, you know, obviously, his his legal team is going to constantly try to paint this as a political witch hunt. They're going to try to pr- act like it's election interference. For God's sakes, the guy runs for election again to try to give himself an excuse to not be indicted on his prior criminality, but just bring us down to earth on kind of the dangerous nature of his having possession of these these documents, how they could have compromised human sources, and just our entire uh, national defense. Sure, so there is a, a catalog, an inventory of types of documents that the government is relying upon the basis for this willful retention uh, counts in the indictment. It outlines, you know, foreign uh, government information, defense capabilities, nuclear weaponry, both in the U.S. and other countries, intelligence intercepts, our understanding of uh, how our defensive fortifications would hold up in the face of the military attack, attack, any number of issues that are usually very tightly held, closely you know, held secrets within the intelligence community and the defense department. And the reason we put so much time, so much effort, so much money into securing these records isn't because if one or two got out, the world, you know, the country would collapse and that you know, would explode. But because every time you lose control over these documents, every time a foreign adversary, an intelligence official, a foreign government gets a hold of some of this information, it takes just another chink out of the armor. It weakens the U.S. national security posture just a little bit more. That's why we have things like secure facilities where these documents are held. That's why there's highly uh, sensitive and extremely expensive to maintain 
mechanisms and databases that, that the uh, U.S. government officials use to transmit and work on these documents. You do this because the interest of national security requires it so that other adversaries, other governments can't get a hold of the information and take steps to undermine our national security. And what he did showed just how much none of that mattered to him. Just how much he thought he could skate, get away with this, just like you had mentioned with the Soho option, just as it happened back in the 70s and 80s with the apartment buildings. He has a history of believing no matter, no, no, uh, no law enforcement entity, no governmental entity can ever hold him accountable. He can outlast everyone. And he has done that for most of his life. So he had reason to believe he could pull it off. But he finally got some justice today. He finally got held to account, at least in the beginning steps now, with this indictment. Whether or not he'll be convicted is ultimately not up to you or me. That'll be up to a jury of his peers. But this is the first step in holding him accountable for his actions. Yeah. It certainly is. And as Jack Smith said today, it was not Jack Smith that brought this indictment. It was a grand jury that voted for it in, in Florida. Um, and let's let's just take a listen. We didn't get a whole lot out of Jack Smith, but we heard his voice today. Let's let's listen to Jack Smith's uh, announcement of this indictment. Good afternoon. <laughs> today, an indictment was unsealed. Yeah. Charging Donald J. Trump with felony violations of our national security laws, as well as participating in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. Yeah. This indictment was voted by a grand mm -hmm. jury of citizens in the Southern District of Florida. And I invite everyone to read it in full, to understand the scope and the gravity of the crimes charged. Mm -hmm. The men and women of the United States intelligence community and our armed forces dedicate their lives protecting our nation and its people. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the United States, and they must be enforced. Violations of those laws <laughs> put our country at risk. Adherence to the rule of law is a bedrock principle of the Department of Justice, and our nation's commitment to the rule of law sets an <laughs> example for the world. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. Applying those laws, collecting facts, that's what determines the outcome of an investigation. Nothing more, and nothing, nothing less. less. Yeah. The prosecutors in my office are among the most talented and experienced in the Department of Justice. They have investigated this case hewing to the highest ethical standards, and they will continue to do so as this case proceeds. It's very important for me to note that the defendants in this case must be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. To that end, my office will seek a speedy trial in this matter, yeah. consistent with the public interest and the rights of the accused. We very much look forward to presenting our case to a jury of citizens in the Southern District of Florida. In conclusion, I would like to thank the dedicated public servants of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, with whom my office is conducting this investigation, and who work tirelessly every day upholding the rule of law in our country. I'm deeply proud to stand shoulder to shoulder with them.
Thank you very much. Right on. Watch for Nothing more and nothing less than one set of laws applying to everyone. Pretty much says it all, doesn't it, Brad? Yes, very much so. And let's be clear. This is how the Justice Department is supposed to handle things. This is how the process is supposed to work. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what money you have. It doesn't matter what political affiliation you have. The law is supposed to apply equally to you, me, and everybody else. Now, we know in reality, there's always, you know, some levels of nuance and gray there. And truth be told, if Donald Trump had cooperated originally and had not engaged in the obstructive acts, the Espionage Act violations likely would have been disregarded and they would have been, everybody would have just to get the documents back. But because of what he did, he is now being held to account with this indictment. We'll see what happens with the other special counsel that we know is going on looking into President Biden's actions. And that special counsel will take whatever action they deem appropriate. But for the moment, just as much as any other security clearance holder, just as much as any other person with an authorized access to classified information, Donald Trump is being held to account under the rules, under the U.S. Code, and under the Constitution of the United States. This is how it's supposed to work. It's not perfect, not pretty, but this is the way the rule of law and criminal justice in this country is supposed to proceed, and that's what's happening so Watch far. Out, baby. Brad, in your practice, have you ever come across parties with clearances holding documents such as these in their bathroom? No. That's a hard no. Hard no. Not in their shower or in their white and gold ballroom. No, mostly just because most of them know that the white and gold ballroom just looks really tacky. But beyond that, no. No. Well, the other thing, one other thing that we learned from the indictment today is that, in fact, there was a lot of discussion last week when we learned about that audio from Bedminster, um, that it was, we weren't sure if it was actually a classified document. And the special counsel alleges in this unsealed indictment that um, the Iran attack plan that was referenced in that Bedminster audio was, in fact, a classified document. Um, Isn't that an extraordinary risk to U.S. national security? I mean, wouldn't Brad, foreign adversaries pay tens of millions of dollars for that kind of information? Of course, easily. And we know that Mar-a-Lago was just rife with intelligence and vulnerabilities. There were foreign nationals going in there. Some of them got indicted later on for their actions trying to infiltrate Mar-a-Lago. It certainly wasn't secure by any means. And these boxes were sitting in here. They were sitting in the bathroom. They are sitting, you know, in the ballroom on the stage. Anybody could have gotten a hold of them. And that's a risk the U.S. government could not tolerate anymore. In terms of the Iran war document, you know, and I don't believe that's actually cited as a specific point for one of the underlying counts, but rather is a factual background. That goes to Donald Trump's knowledge, his awareness, and his intent. That he understood that he had documents in his possession that were still classified. He he, he knew he no longer had the ability to declassify them. He knew he had not declassified them before leaving, and he did not return them to the United States government. They still do not have them. We don't know where they are, which is a terrifying thought on its own. But that just is one more piece of this factual foundation that you're going to see when this gets to trial as to how much Donald Trump really did understand the process, how much he was aware of how this is supposed to work, and how much he disregarded all of that to act as as his own judge, jury, and executioner on what is and is not legally permissible when it comes to classified documents.
Yeah. Well, as a former staffer of the Trump campaign, I will say one thing about Donald Trump. He's often, he's often, you know, um, ridiculed as as a crazy person or as a lunatic. Um, this is somebody who who I have I have repeated this so often. He knows what he is doing. He has complete knowledge. He is not a stupid person. He is constantly calculating what is in his best interest. And he has quite the mental capacity to do that with intent and with knowledge. And I just remember, Brad, I mean, after after January 6th, where it just felt like there was such a slow track to possible prosecution for Trump, such a such a resistance to charge a former president. There was so much discussion of, yeah, yeah, he did this in X and Y and Z, but where is the mens rea? How do we prove intent? Isn't this indictment just loaded with th- what that proof that we need of intent of mens rea? This indictment has an extensive amount of information and is rather clean and precise in outlining his awareness, the mens rea, his intent to hold on to the documents and the actions he took, particularly the obstructive aspects, to ensure that these documents weren't returned to the U.S. government when they're supposed to. That's got to be the biggest problem for him going forward, is that when it comes to this case, there's not a lot about the facts he's going to be really able to fight on. He can nitpick, you know, if this gets to trial, his lawyers will try to nitpick the sufficiency of the government's evidence, the extent to which uh, witnesses are relying on, you know, hearsay or relying on impressions and spec- you know, and opinions on what people meant about things. But they're not going to generally be able to deny that certain things occurred. Their goal at trial, if it gets there, isn't even necessarily to get a not guilty verdict. It's going to be to get a hung jury. Their goal is going to be to put enough doubt about the good faith of the prosecutors, about the intent of Donald Trump was his innocent mistakes. Maybe he was a little reckless, but not intentionally, you know, willfully retaining the documents. They're looking for one juror to hang the jury, and that's all they will need to in order to get uh, a hung jury in order to avoid conviction at trial if it ever gets that far. I think back to some of the convictions that came out of the Mueller investigation, um, particularly Paul Manafort. I'll never forget that one Trump-supporting juror who was on that on that jury. And you would think possibly that someone like her would have been reluctant to hold Donald Trump's former campaign manager um, guilty of a crime, but she, very gratefully, and I think I think we can hopefully look to this that that there is um, that there are going to be fair-minded people who put. Donald Trump in the position of, like Jack Smith was outlining, any criminal defendant, um, and and do not give him the benefit of the doubt and do not buy into this gaslighting. I, of course, have been dealing with this legal uh, this legal diversionary um, strategy for, I don't know, going on six years now in my case, my cases against the Trump campaign, so I'm very familiar with it. But um, I'm I'm very hopeful that that we get a a fair jury pool that is not distracted that does not latch on to one little um, tiny bit of doubt that Donald Trump tries to sow by his gaslighting. But talking about jury pool and jurisdiction and venue, we of course um, have this have this indictment in the Southern District of Florida. Um, the reporting is because of this pending Supreme Court decision that could have completely. Um, had a, a possible conviction thrown out if it would, had been determined um, that the Department, Department of Justice did not pick the correct venue, right? 
Correct. Yeah, there was a real legitimate concern that if they brought this case in D.C., which is where the investigation started, because that's when the documents were first returned to the National Archives back in early 2022. The FBI gets a hold of it. They start running an investigation out of the National Security Division out of D.C. And the Justice Department opens a grand jury out of D.C. to start gathering information. But when Jack Smith's team ultimately looked at what they had, too much of the uh, information, too many of the predicate acts for this, these criminal charges took place in Florida. The documents were with, stored there, the with, with retention of them happened in there, the obstructive acts happened there. The connection at DC was too tenuous, they couldn't take that risk of this either getting tossed in pretrial motions or being tossed on or being reversed on appeal if venue had been allowed in DC. And, you know, look, you mentioned the jury pool in the Manafort case. I'd also mention the jury pool in Trump's own civil case in New York. That was filled almost entirely with people who hated, hated Donald Trump. But even then, they took their job seriously. They did not find him liable on the top issue of the civil case, which was rape. They felt that, you know, Jean Carroll had not proven her case. And the reason I think that occurred is because in the end, despite all our political differences, despite all the you know tribalism and people screaming at each other on TV, Americans, by and large, are decent people. They take their oath as a juror seriously, and they will come in and do their job properly. So while I know some people have some anxiety and heartache, you know, concern about this being brought in South Florida. I am convinced that if the jury you could trust the jury process at all, you gotta trust it everywhere and not just in your favorite venue. And it certainly would undercut some of the political arguments you would expect from the Trump team if this had been brought in DC. They would say, Oh, it's a DC jury, it doesn't matter. This is now gonna be brought in South Florida. That's a far more favorable area for Donald Trump if they convict him even there. That undermines some of those political attacks that they otherwise would make. Well, Brad, if you could also level set the anxiety that I think we all got this morning when we found that Judge Eileen Cannon's name was on uh, the summons, <laughs> I think, to Donald Trump. And also, of course, the magistrate judge, um, Bruce Reinhardt, who signed the FBI search warrant. Where uh, where can we expect Judge Eileen's Cannon's or Judge Eileen Cannon's oversight of this case to begin and end? Do you think it only goes through the arraignment or do you think she stays on this case beyond that? So she certainly will be there for the arraignment, and that's partially due to the fact that the search warrant came from that magistrate judge, and she had already had involvement tied to the original fight over a special master. I have a feeling that's why that started that way. I expect there to be some discussion and a bit of you know legal maneuvering about whether or not she'll be allowed to remain, remain on the case, if there'll be a motion to have her recuse, uh, given what transpired earlier. Either way, even if she does remain on this case, there's two reasons why I would caution people not to start having anxiety attacks over the idea of her, you know, overseeing this case, notwithstanding what happened several months ago with her rulings, with which I completely disagree. One is she got pretty brutally reversed by the 11th Circuit in a unanimous opinion. No district court judge likes that, particularly a very new one that's going to hurt a little bit, that doesn't speak too well of their reputation and their professional analysis. So there's going to be an extent to which she's going to be cognizant of how the 11th Circuit already viewed her analysis of these issues. 
The second reason is that was a debate over what, how to handle, you know, review of documents in the context of a search warrant. Now there's an indictment. Now it's a full-blown criminal matter. There's charges already leveled. Her, the scope of her authorities is more restricted, but more so, now there's something more concrete before her other than just the hysteria around the search warrant. And so when it comes to these pretrial motions, if she's overseeing it, I wouldn't expect Donald Trump is going to necessarily be able to pull off what he was able to pull off once before, because the government has all the information now. It has more than just its own affidavits. It has documentation. It has a far more concrete case it can make to Judge Cannon that it could not make during that first go around. So you think that um, she was assigned because of the prior the prior assignment, even notwithstanding that the Eleventh Circuit determined that she didn't have jurisdiction, that would still be a natural thing. Correct. Yeah, I think that's why she's at least for the moment assigned to it, similar to how. Uh, the judge in New York who has the hush money criminal case was also involved in another case involving Mr. Trump just because of the familiarity with the issues. So I certainly believe that's why she has the case for the moment. We will not know likely for at least another week or so whether or not she will maintain uh, presiding over the case. We'll find out when we find out and the process will play out however it's going to play out. Again, this is the federal judiciary. This is the justice system. You don't get to pick and choose who your judge is going to be. Sometimes it's just the luck or the lack of luck of the draw. But if there is a serious issue of legal or erroneous legal rulings in the pretrial motions, the government has the ability to seek an immediate appeal before it ever gets to trial in case Judge Cannon were to go too far. We'll cross that bridge if we ever come to it. I want to touch on a few other things involving uh, Trump's co-defendant, Walt Nauta. This is, of course, his valet, a former uh, Navy vet, um, who has, um, according to the special counsel, he said he was not aware of Trump's boxes being brought to the residence for review before the 15 boxes were sent to NARA. He said he did not know how the boxes took to the NARA truck got to the residence. And when asked whether he knew Trump's boxes had been stored before they were in the residence, he falsely according to this indictment responded I wish I could tell you I don't know I don't I honestly just don't know and so um, based on those statements um, having been found to be false he is he has also been criminally indicted now earlier this week Brad we had um, news that his lawyer Stanley Woodward had filed a complaint of prosecutorial prosecutorial misconduct against Jay Bratt, who's the chief of counterintel the counterintelligence section. And I kind of saw this before it came out. I kind of felt like this was going to, I saw it previewed in Tim Parlatore's media tour, I think uh, earlier this week with Lawrence O'Donnell, he was complaining about the conduct of Jay Bratt. Do you think, and by the way, his, his allegation in this um, complaint is that uh, Jay Bratt in, in a meeting to try to get the cooperation of Walt, Walt Nauta, um, said he knew that Walt Nauta's attorney was applying to be a judge. So somehow perhaps implicating that he could have some kind of, you know, influence over his judge application. Um, a stretch, isn't it, for prosecutorial misconduct? A serious stretch. Again, this is a political talking point masquerading as a legal complaint. So to be clear, what if, if we... If we take at face value what is alleged to have occurred, if we assume Jay Brass said what is alleged against him, it was, in my view, inappropriate, kind of stupid, 
for you know to say honestly, I mean, it was just it should not have happened. It was really not a professional remark to make in that context. It was unnecessary. But I don't see any way to how it's prosecutorial misconduct. He didn't promise him a judgeship or say we'll dangle it or say we won't give it. We won't get it. He has no control over that decision, anyways. He has no authority over who does or does not get selected, and there's no evidence from the allegation that they said something along the lines of, uh, you know, your guy better flip on Trump or else you'll lose out on this judgeship. It was a really, you know, uh, imp- it was an improper but not great, not great side comment. <laughs> But it didn't cross any ethical or legal lines, in my view. And it's just them throwing stuff at the wall, desperate to smear this with any, you know, any hint of prosecutorial misconduct that they can. This isn't going to go very far. If they were to bring this up at uh, in pretrial motions, it won't go very far. Because over the last 20, 30, 40 years, a lot of the law and order policies, especially that conservatives pushed, developed case law that expanded and made clear just how much leeway investigators prosecutors have when interacting with witnesses potential defendants and their lawyers they're allowed to lie to people they're allowed to engage in extensive you know uh, interrogation and questioning and it doesn't cross the line for anybody who you know is you know a netflix binger like myself you know that there's a kid i say kid he's probably an adult now but there's a young man sitting in jail in wisconsin based solely off a coerced confession that the Seventh Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals found was voluntary, despite the fact that he was 16, mother wasn't in the room, and he had limited intellectual capacity. Guess what? That was still found to be voluntary. The law enforcement has tons of discretion on how far they can push this, and the courts will permit it in the interest of law and order. And this is just this uh, that authority being used against one of Trump's team now, and they don't like what they've created over the years. Yeah, I love that you bring that issue of course confessions because it's just one aspect of our judicial system when it when we don't get it right, where people are wrongfully imprisoned. Um, I've mentioned so many times on this show and just in 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 my fight and insistence that Donald Trump be held criminally accountable, the inequity of someone like him with the gravity of his criminal misconduct not being charged in the face of so many people for such lesser offenses or no offenses at all, um, having their lives materially materially altered, spending years in prison, um, oftentimes being put to death wrongfully for crimes they didn't commit. Um, isn't this just, to me, this, this indictment and hopefully following through um, with a conviction, it, to me it's a levity, it's a, it's a, it's a um, evening. It's, it is showing what Mike Pence, the spineless man that he is, said he wanted equal treatment of the law in one breath and then saying don't tr- uh, prosecute Donald Trump in the next. But this really is equal treatment of the law. Isn't it just, to me, it's like just an exhaling for the entire country that justice can be equally meted out. It's karma. Is what I keep <laughs> it's common because look, this was always the idea. You know, this is uh, what conservatives were always very good at was the idea that there needed to be true law and order, that there needed to be justice, that people commit a crime, you hold them to account. That was the policy. That was what they used for political victories for many years. How they got elected to various offices, and that those were the policies of the case law that they helped fashion. But what they always forgot was, okay, but it's going to apply to everybody, not just the kid on the street selling crack 
it's going to also apply to you, white collar, you know, criminal defendant. And the same policies that apply to that kid on the street corner are going to apply to you. And the same authorities that the law enforcement officer has with that kid on the street corner are going to apply to you. And the Trump team and their acolytes and their cronies are all horrified that this happened. They loved when it was Trump sent telling the cops, you know, you can take the kid, you know, take the guy, you pick up for a drug offense and just smash his head against the door. You know, don't be too gentle as you put him in the car. They'd be horrified if that happened to them. But they thought it was funny when Donald Trump said it about somebody else. This is karma. This is the chickens coming home to roost. And all those policies and all that law that they helped fashion over the years is now being used against them. And they never thought it would happen. Yeah, that framing is um, really touches, really hits home for me because I, of course, bought into that propaganda for years. You know, I bought into this is the, this is the, this is the party, the Republicans, the GOP that's going to keep us safe. They're the ones that are going to go after the bad guys. And it turns out this is all just a projection strategy to cover their own crimes and really, um, you know, vilify often through a very racist um, lens a certain sect sector of society um, and portray them as the criminals who are endangering our country when the most dangerous criminals are at the top of the <laughs> of the grand old party. And it, this was really fleshed out in the presidency of Donald Trump. I think he, um, you know, as I talk about often, I think he really brought to the surface a rot in the Republican Party that has really been there for years. Um, and and it's, it's so, it's tragic but not surprising with what I have learned about the character or lack thereof of these people that at this moment they would yet dig in once again. They would not distance themselves from him. They would continue to do his bidding as his criminality is fleshed out more and more. Um, but let's take a quick break, Brad, for our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about handling that criminality of Trump um, through my case. Ben Micellis here. Breathe some life into your own backyard with FastGrowingTrees.com this spring. From shade to fresh fruit to privacy and natural beauty, let FastGrowingTrees.com help you plant your dream garden with their expert advice and fast, reliable shipping. FastGrowingTrees.com's plant experts curate thousands of easy-to-grow plant, shrub, and tree varieties for your unique climate. Meyer lemons to evergreens and everything in between. Happy plants, happy home, right? But sometimes it's hard to know which plants will do best. No problem because with fast growth. So you're familiar with my battle to invalidate Donald Trump's illegal non-disclosure agreement. Of course, I was successful on that back in 2021 on an individual basis. We had a court precedent ruling that that NDA, which says that people are silenced for life, that they can not ever criticize Donald Trump, that anything that he says is confidential is confidential, um, was ruled in, invalid and unenforceable. And I've continued that fight over the past several years to get that decision certified on a class-wide basis to invalidate that NDA for everyone who ever worked for the 2016 Trump campaign. Well, this week, we got a preliminary order granting preliminary certification of the class 
so that that will go into class-wide effect pending a fairness hearing in October. Um, I wanted to share that news with you. I think it's uh, amazing, very gratifying, coincidental that it's happening on the same week that Donald Trump is federally indicted. Uh To me, this has always been a fight about transparency and about not having something having this mechanism by way of this illegal non-disclosure agreement out there to allow Donald Trump to get away with more criminality. This frees people to speak the truth. Yeah, no, it's been a fantastic case to watch of yours for somebody on for years now as we see this get, you know, the various layers get peeled back piece by piece. I think what should hopefully come out of your case and the related cases, um, I think Amarosa, hers might still be ongoing, is that there has to be a limit. There has to be some measure of reasonableness in terms of how far these NDAs go. Because look, there are always going to be non-disclosure agreements, both the private and public sector, and there is a time and place for non-disclosure agreements, particularly when it comes to proprietary information, when it comes to trade secrets. There's any number of legitimate, understandable reasons to have an NDA, to have it apply to certain things for certain time frames. What the Trump team did, and what Donald Trump himself clearly had been relying on for years was these like lifetime NDAs to silence people on anything and everything. And he got away with it for a long time because one, he had enough money to basically outlast anybody who would ever sue him on it. But two, no one really cared enough to fight him over this long term because he was just the reality TV guy who ran his mouth a lot and kept you know, trading in and trading out lives every you know, 10, 15 years. So it never got to that point. But the worst thing that could happen to him was not that just that he ran for president, but that he won. Because it brought all this to the forefront. And then there was finally a significant public interest aspect to it of people willing, such as yourself, to fight back on these NDAs and to make sure that they, going forward, are more narrowly construed and more narrowly framed out so that they are more appropriate, not just for the, between the parties, but for the public interest and in the interest of transparency. There's a time and a place for an NDA, there's a reason why certain things might need to be withheld between the parties. But this universal anything I ever say, you can never talk about, and, and you can never talk about me or disparage me, is plainly ridiculous. And that's why your case has gone forward. And I'm glad, I'm happy to continue watching it going forward. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm so grateful. As you mentioned, Omarosa's case, her actually, hers was resolved a few years ago with the application of our precedent in the her ongoing arbitration proceeding. So our precedent um, was able to uh, enable her victory in in her arbitration proceeding. Also, another woman named Alva Johnson. These are these are the high profile cases. But the thing about these agreements that's so pernicious, as you know, uh, Brad, is that they're arbitration agreements. So my my trajectory through the courts was extraordinary. I, I initially sued in court to un- invalidate the NDA. They pushed me into arbitration. I lost, had a $50,000 judgment against me. I get it overturned. I, they said, sue us in arbitration. So I bring a class action in arbitration. They reject the class action arbitration because oh. they think I'm never going to have the $50,000 judgment overturned. <laughs> they miscalculate. I get it overturned, and then I sue them in court, which they told me to do. They said if she (laughs) wants to bring her class action, which we're now rejecting in arbitration, she has to do it in court. And so there you go, Trump campaign. We did it in court. 
And we ended up just through um, like this divine, as I've described it, trajectory through arbitration in the courts, getting this court precedent um, that that applied to the high profile cases. But also the, the beauty of the class action is that there could be hundreds, literally, there could be so many unknown behind closed doors, hidden cases where people want to speak out, where people have either have a grievance or just um, have something that they want to say truthfully and they are being threatened with financial ruin like I am to not speak the truth to the American people. Um, and and that's coming to an end. So um, I'm very grateful for that. Um, Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I so enjoyed your insight. Before you leave, if you can kind of just Tell us where you think you see the special counsel going with the January 6th case. Sure. So as far as I can tell, this is going to be sort of a wide-ranging and all-encompassing conspiracy to defraud case that the special counsel will bring with respect to January 6th. What it will uh, essentially be is the events leading up to and culminating with January 6th in terms of Trump's interactions with the fake electors, the interactions with people like Jeffrey Clark at the Justice Department to get Justice Department to intervene on his behalf, his interactions with John Eastman and the senators to try to overturn things um, on, on the, the certification day of January 6th itself. It was a long, very complicated, and extensive conspiracy with multiple different parts, all designed to defraud the United States by overturning the election and preventing the electoral certification of the actual winner, who was Joe Biden, instead permit Donald Trump to remain in office. There may be additional you know, subsidiary uh, charges brought as part of it, but to me, the core of the case is conspiracy to defraud. I think it's going to be a very serious and troubling case for Donald Trump. It is a far murkier and constitutionally problematic case for Jack Smith, which is part of the reason why it's taken so long compared to the classified documents case. It's going to get tied up in all kinds of issues of the power of the presidency because all these actions took place while Donald Trump was still president and still had all those authorities under the Constitution. There's going to be a lot of very complicated and uh, abstract legal debates to have in pretrial motions over the authority of a president and the extent of their abilities to interact with you know state and local officials um, and to coordinate actions they believe to be in the interest of the United States. And it's not going to be as clean cut as the classified documents case. I don't expect that the January 6th case, for example, to make it the trial before the 2024 election. I do see the classified documents case getting there before the election. Do you think Jack Smith indicts um, over January 6th before Fonnie Willis in Georgia? And do you think it matters? I don't think he does it before Fonnie Willis. And no, I don't think it matters. If he went first, cool. If he didn't, cool. Because in the end, Donald Trump's already been indicted twice. He's almost certainly getting indicted now in Georgia in August. And at some point, whether it's next month, August, September, we're, we presume Jack Smith will indict him on January 6th as well. All of these are going to have, you know, overlapping and, you know, interlocking schedules. They're going to start conflicting with each other. He's going to have a campaign schedule that's going to start becoming a problem. He's got the civil trial for his company that's coming up soon. So whether it's Fannie Willis first or Jack Smith first, it's all going to be a problem for him. And the biggest issue is even if he were to become president again, or even if an ally such as Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley were to become president, 2025, 
They can only pardon him on federal charges. They can't pardon him on the Manhattan case. They can't pardon him on the Georgia case. And there's no way uh, Governor Kemp out in Georgia is going to do Donald Trump any favor uh-huh. right about now Why when not? it comes to the Georgia case. Why not? Yeah, I think that that it, this is just a shower of indictments. Donald Trump is not walking away from it this time. He he is facing the music. Brad, Bradley Bradley Moss, thank you so much for joining us. Such a great day to have you on, and I really really appreciate your time. Of course, I done. Thank you. So from Jack Smith indicting Donald Trump to my victory in the NDA case to the U.S. Supreme Court striking down Alabama's congressional map and upholding the Voting Rights Act, this has been an extraordinary week for democracy. In a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court struck down a map that was really just um, restricting the voices of black voters in Alabama. Uh, this is a case called Allen versus Milligan, and it is really, really significant because it um, they decided the Supreme Court not to strike down Section 2 of the right, Voting Rights Act. And this is going to have implications in other cases and in a pending case in Louisiana. Um, this is such an important tool to fight back voter suppression, especially in the South. You know, on Lights On, I've interviewed um, Representative Gloria Johnson of Tennessee, where they have had such an aggressive attack on democracy. So to see these kind of victories in places like Alabama, where there have been notorious attacks on the voting rights, especially people of color, um, to have this upheld was a major, major victory. And really interestingly, right after this ruling came out, which really tells you just how just how um, detrimental and silencing of the will of the people these gerrymandered vote, uh, voting maps are, um, the Cook Political Report changed the rating of five House races. Um, two in Alabama, two in Louisiana, and one in North, North Carolina. The two Alabama races went from solid Republican to toss-up, from solid Republican to toss-up. This is what happens when when maps are drawn to legitimately reflect the demographics or the, the geographics of an area and politicians are not picking their voters. If you've ever seen gerrymandered maps, you just see through the pure visual how insane it is um, for cutting out regions to literally pick voters and eliminate the voices of, in most cases in the South, people of color. Um, I just hope this is a resurgence of democracy or the beginning of a, a turn, a shift in these, what have been known as very deep red states and are just not necessarily deeply read. This is this has been the effect of politicians suppressing the will of the voters and this week in the Supreme Court. The whole fucking Republican um, Party for cheating in elections. Are starting to uh, get away from that in Alabama, at least. So very good news there. Um, as I always talk about on Lifetime, the consequences of impunity are dire. We are finally addressing those those that impunity in this country. I'm so grateful for that. I don't want to turn a blind eye to what is happening around the world. As I've mentioned before, Donald Trump's best fascist friend is over in Russia and the Ukraine just raining down terror. I think this is the consequence of decades of impunity for Vladimir Putin, and it did not stop this week. 
We cannot afford to turn a blind eye to what is going on in Ukraine. This week, Ukrainians, there was a back and forth, Russian blaming Ukrainians, Ukrainians blaming Russians, but um, I think it's pretty clear who the propagandists are here, and pretty good evidence that Russian terrorists destroyed a Ukrainian dam. This was the Nova Kovka Dam, 50 miles upriver from Kherson, and Ukrainian officials say that it was destroyed from inside by Russians occupying forces who controlled the dam. This is just so devastating with this, um, the Ukrainian population who is already dealing with war. They are now dealing with flooding. Uh, there are thousands of Ukrainian citizens that live in and around the Dnipro River uh, downstream of this destroyed dam, and they were just in melee following this immense flooding. Uh, I want to play a clip of some of the rescues that went on in Kherson this week, literally rescuing people while Russians were firing down artillery on citizens and um, some other extraordinary uh, rescues of, of animals by these brave Ukrainians who have endured so much and too much at the hands of a terrorist named Vladimir Putin. Our actions to hold these people accountable is are so vital, so important. We've made so much progress this week and we can't afford to stop or look down. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Lights On. Thank you to my guest, Bradley Moss, and our sponsors. And as always, if you would like to support me in my ongoing fight against the Trump campaign, you can do that at thejessicadenson.com slash donate. thejessicadenson.com slash donate. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful week and celebrate these amazing victories. We love our luminaries and the Midas Mighty. Still going live, but let's see what else Most Touch has to offer. Shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University of Edwardstone and KPYT Basketball Hockey Tribal Radio. Tribal Radio. Tribal Radio. On the rest with Trista Show. Tribal Radio. Trump hack judge assigned to criminal case, but don't worry. 
I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. We are learning that disgraced federal judge, Judge Eileen Cannon, who Donald Trump appointed to the bench in 2020, who improperly assumed jurisdiction over the search warrant executed by the Department of Justice in August of 2022 at the Mar-a-Lago premises, That Judge Eileen Cannon, who was essentially reprimanded by the Court of Appeals in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which supervises the Florida federal courts, ruling that she should never have been interfering with the Department of Justice's ongoing criminal investigation of Donald Trump. Yes, that Judge Eileen Cannon has been randomly assigned uh, in the criminal case brought by the Department of Justice and Special Counsel Jack Smith against Donald Trump in the Southern District of Florida. We have reviewed the unsealed indictment of the 38 charges brought against Donald Trump and one of his aides, Walt Nauta. These charges include obstruction of justice, conspiracy, uh, willful retention of national defense uh, information, which is an Espionage Act violation. And this case was filed in the Southern District of Florida. There are 15 active federal judges in the Southern District of Florida, and it had a 1 in 15 chance of being assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon, and it was assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon. That is a (laughs) 6.67% chance that it would have went in front of Eileen Cannon, and that's who it was assigned. I want to explain how it got assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon, its implications, but most importantly, I am actually not worried that this case has been assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon. Uh, First and foremost, let me explain to you why I am not worried that this case has been assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon. So it's assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon for (laughs) now. However, under 11th Circuit Court of Appeals precedent, which is binding on federal judges in the Southern District of Florida and all the federal courts uh, in Florida, um, Judge Eileen Cannon should on her own recuse herself from this case or upon a motion for recusal brought by the Department of Justice, she should recuse herself. If she does not voluntarily recuse herself, the Department of Justice can then appeal that to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and they should then order that she be recused. There is a 11th Circuit case called U.S. vs. Martin, which is the binding precedent here, which holds that where a judge has shown prior bias and where the judge has engaged in potential prior misconduct um, and there is an appearance of impropriety, the judge should be removed from the case. And if they don't voluntarily recuse, the 11th Circuit can remove the judge. So I ultimately do think Judge Eileen Cannon will either recuse herself or be removed by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals under the U.S. v. Martin uh, 11th Circuit precedent because the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has already made a ruling where they removed Judge Eileen Cannon from uh, assuming jurisdiction, extraordinary jurisdiction, which she didn't have. And in the order, they basically accused her of uh, interfering improperly with the Department of Justice's criminal investigation into Donald Trump. So where there is an order essentially already reprimanding her 
Uh, the remedy here would be recusal, and I think that is what the Department of Justice is um, going to pursue. And so I don't think she's going to be on this case for any significant period of time. However, if she is on the case for a significant period of time, if she is not recused, if for whatever reason the DOJ decides not to file a motion to uh, recuse her, or she doesn't on her own sua sponte recuse herself, look, the allegations that are in on, this fucker. indictment are bulletproof. Get on it. Okay, even the right-wing spin master lawyers who have been, you know, saying, oh, the DOJ is weaponized, politicization this, politicization that, this is Merrick Garland on a witch hunt, and special counsel Jack Smith is overreaching. Okay, even people who have said that have looked at this uh, indictment, this 38-count indictment, and have said, wow, this is very, very damaging. I mean, it has... Uh, audio recordings, under oath <laughs> testimony, it's got text messages of Donald Trump's aide Walt Nauta with others talking about moving the boxes. It's got photographs of the boxes being moved. It's got photographs of the boxes in bathrooms, inside showers, in auditoriums. Uh, it lays this out in a way that's unimpeachable, I think, even if Judge Eileen Cannon is ultimately the judge that oversees this case. There isn't anything, I think, that she can do to try to kick it, to try to dismiss. I mean, she can try to do what she wants, but the 11th Circuit will never let her get away with it. Um, and again, ultimately, her rulings, just like they were before, assuming she stays on the case, are appealable to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. They previously issued an order reprimanding her. I think they would clearly do that again. So there is no way that I think Donald Trump can rely on her just to dismiss this case and the case goes away for him. <laughs> it may cause additional delay in the case, which would be very frustrating for that to take place. But it's not like she's going to be able just to get rid of this case. Um, so, how did the case get assigned to her? Well, the case was filed in the Southern District of Florida. Uh, why was it filed in the Southern District of Florida? That's where Mar-a-Lago is based. So, the Southern District of Florida has jurisdiction over uh, the criminal conduct that takes place at Mar-a-Lago from the unsealed indictment and the 38 charges. We know that a lot of the criminal conduct, the gravamen of the of the criminal conduct, all took place at Mar-a-Lago. So what Special Counsel Jack Smith, I think, was considering in the jurisdiction is that if he brought the case in Washington, D.C., using there the jurisdictional hook that these records are national defense records, and as a result, uh, that implicates jurisdiction in Washington, D.C where the documents should have been. Donald Trump could challenge that and have a year-plus-long appeal of trying to say, no, the case should be in the Southern District of Florida, um, and the venue should be moved, and then appeal that to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, try to appeal that to the United States Supreme Court, and then that could take a significant period of time. In Special Counsel Jack Smith's press conference that he gave on Friday, he talked about the importance of having a speedy trial, and part of that is making sure there's no kind of jurisdictional challenges that would be bogging down the case. Don, uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith's other criminal case against Donald Trump for the insurrection-related crimes, that would be in Washington, D.C., I think, if, uh, if and when uh, those charges are brought. But these were brought in the Southern District of Florida. 
given that the uh, uh, charges relating to Donald Trump's theft of thousands of government records and obstruction of justice was brought in the Southern District of Florida. There are 15 active federal judges. It gets randomly assigned. So as I mentioned earlier in the video, there was a 1 in 15 chance it gets assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon. People have suggested, well, did it go to Judge Eileen Cannon because it was related to the other case where yeah. she lost jurisdiction and the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals accused yeah. her of interfering That's with the, the DOJ's criminal investigation? No. It has nothing to do with her involvement in that case. It is a random assignment, and I know that is hard to believe and hard to fathom, like what are the chances of that happening, but the DOJ would be the ones, because they filed originally, who would, who would if they were going to be the ones to relate the case, they would file a notice of related case. And here, no way the DOJ would ever file a notice of related case to Judge Eileen Cannon, and two, no way they would ever file a notice of related case to a case that's not an active case. Judge Eileen Cannon was adjudicated by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals to never have had jurisdiction in the first place. The other case that she uh, asserted jurisdiction that didn't exist is a closed case. You can't relate this new case to a closed case where Judge Eileen Cannon never had jurisdiction uh, in the first place. And I also think there is some silver lining here, because imagine if Judge Eileen Cannon never exposed who she was last summer, and then she was randomly assigned this case or some other Trump-related cases. Because she engaged in such